You can go ahead and take your seat, please. Uh, in your bulletin, there's a number of announcements of ways to get connected and ways to serve. I just wanted to mention, of course, that Easter's coming up in two weeks, and we all have people in our lives who may not think of coming to church on a regular Sunday, but when it comes to Christmas and Easter, those might be opportunities where they may be looking for a place to worship, and so I want you to be prayerfully considering who you may invite to join you. Uh, we always do an Easter breakfast in the morning before, uh, that Sunday morning right before the service. There's a sign-up out there if you want to sign up to bring something. If you want to help out in any way, um, you can contact Barb Pizzaferrato and let her know that you're interested in helping. We'd love to have people who can help with setup or cleanup or uh, obviously we have to have a quick transition from having all the things out there and then coming in here to worship. So um, we'd love to have you help out with that if you could. And that Good Friday, there's also a Good Friday service, 630 to 745 on the 7th. Uh, if you've never been a part of that service, it's a mixture of uh, traditional readings from the, that passage, um, sorry, from, you know, from the... Uh, the, the Holy Week of Jesus, some of the readings, some songs, an opportunity just to spend time with the Lord preparing your heart for Easter. This morning, I am continuing in a sermon series through the New Testament book uh, that's known as Philippians, which was a letter written by the Apostle Paul. He was writing from a Roman jail where he had been unjustly imprisoned, and he's writing to this church that he had started in Philippi to remind them that God is at work, even though he's in jail, that, that the kingdom is advancing, to help them to keep their joy in the midst of suffering. And we're going through a little at a time. This morning we're going to be in chapter 3, verse 17, to chapter 4, verse 3. And so I'm going to put it up here on the screen. And let me read this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 to 4, 3. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you, for as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is unearthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, we trust that this is your word. These are your words meant for us. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help these words to come alive and to speak directly into our hearts and our situations to bring us whatever conviction or comfort that we need this morning. May you be glorified in this place and in our church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So he begins this passage by encouraging them to follow his example, which is something that he has said before in this, uh, in this letter, the importance of following living examples. Him, he mentioned Timothy and Epaphroditus earlier. And we talked about how important that is. I had shared a quote a few weeks ago by D.L. Moody where he said, well, out of 100 men, one will read the Bible and 99 will read the Christian. 
it's a great way of reminding us that not everyone who's seeking God is out there picking up a Bible and reading it, but they are paying attention. And if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, there will be people watching your life. And so Paul, again, tells them, follow my example and take note of those who live according to the pattern that we gave you. And just remember the previous section. He did not say that he had some perfect example for them to follow. Instead, he had said this. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take, that of, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So notice, he's not saying, follow my example of perfection. He says very clearly here, I'm not perfect. I have not yet reached my goal, but I am pressing on. I want to know Christ. That is the motivation of my heart is to know Jesus. And so he's asking them, follow my example. Follow my example of going after God, of seeking him. I am not perfect. I have not arrived, but I'm pressing on to know him more. Follow my example. And then as we go on in this passage this morning, he goes on to contrast two groups of people that we're going to look at this morning. One group, he says, lives as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, as I've often told you before, now I say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. That's one group. And then he says there's another group. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. There's the heavenly citizens. We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So Paul naturally encourages them to live as the latter group. Live as citizens of heaven, not as those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And I want to just... Try to understand this morning the descriptive language he uses to contrast these two groups this morning and what it means for us today. So beginning with this group, the enemies of the cross of Christ. So what, what does the cross of Christ mean? He doesn't, just say, he doesn't just say enemies of Jesus here. He says enemies of the cross of Christ. What do you think he means when he talks about those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ? Well, let's remind ourselves of the cross of Christ. The cross was an instrument of torture in the Roman world, and they used it for the worst of all criminals, and they'd strip them down naked or maybe leave a cloth on for modesty purposes, and they would nail them to the cross, their wrists, their feet, and publicly display them as a deterrent to everyone else. This is what we'll do to you if you offend us, if you go against our authority. And Jesus, even though he had done nothing wrong, was handed over to the Roman authorities. The Jews claimed that he had set himself up as the king of the Jews, as an opponent of Caesar, basically. And he was nailed to the cross. And it wasn't just some tragic story, but there was a purpose behind it, that God had ordained this to happen for a reason. That the cross is where Jesus, the eternal son of God, died for the sins of the world. And so the cross of Christ declares that we are sinners, that we have fallen short of God's holy standard, 
that we're rebels against a holy God, that we're sinners in need of a Savior, in need of someone to save us from our sins, to make us right with God. So on the one hand, it declares that we're so sinful, so wicked, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save us, that no one on the basis of their own spiritual resume can stand before a holy God. No one can save themselves. We need Jesus and his death on the cross to save us. That's how wicked we are. But on the other hand, it's a portrayal of how loved we are. That we are so loved that God did not leave us in our sins, but gave his son to die for us. That Jesus willingly went through that torture for you, to rescue you, to make you right with God, to give you eternal life. Think of Colossians chapter 2, 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There's a lot of reversal of language in there, if you didn't notice how the cross was where Jesus' criminals were supposed to be nailed to the cross as a public spectacle display, you know, of the worst of the criminals. And here, Paul turns the language around and says, no, that is where the law was nailed to the cross. It, can, it's, it no longer has any authority over us. And Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and authorities that were against us, freeing us from the power of sin, forgiving us. That is what the cross of Christ means. That is where the, 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 the justice of God and the mercy of God meet, the justice of God and the love of God, that we're so sinful that we could not save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save us, but we're so loved that Jesus willingly gave his life for us. Again, there's two ways to be enemies of the cross of Christ. I think the first is this. The first way, then, would be to deny that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Remember, we're not just saying you're an enemy of Jesus, but an enemy of the cross of Christ. What is it about the cross of Christ that would make someone an enemy of the cross of Christ? I think the first is this, to deny that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Because if you don't think you're a sinner in need of a Savior, then you're proclaiming that Jesus died for nothing. You know, you see Jesus up there on the cross, and you're like, that's nice, Jesus, but you really didn't have to do that. I didn't need it. You're an enemy of the cross of Christ if you think that you're not a sinner in need of a Savior. Again, Paul says, For as I have often told you before, now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame, their mind is on earthly things. It's an interesting phrase, their God is their stomach. I think he's just saying that basically they live for their appetites. Instead of living for the heavenly God who created them, they are living for their appetites, their earthly appetites. Their mind is on earthly things. That is what they're living for, is the things of this world, their pleasures, their earthly, worldly pleasures. Whatever their appetite tells them, that's what they go after. Calls to mind the writer of Ecclesiastes who wrote this, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the hearts of men. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. 
My heart took delight in all my work, and this was my reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So I think the first way to be an enemy of the cross of Christ is to be someone who says, I do not need a savior. I do not need Jesus. Thank you very much. To not see yourself as a sinner, a rebel from a holy God who is in need of a savior. And this is very appealing. You read this and you're like, well, that is kind of appealing, right? To just go after your whatever worldly pleasures are before you to live for those things. Paul says their glory is in their shame. The things they think will give their lives glory in the end are going to let them down. They're going to prove to be worthless and vulnerable. They're chasing after the wind. It's a great phrase. Chasing after the wind. They are going after something that will never catch and never possess. That's what it means, he says, to go after the pleasures of this world, to run after things that you will never catch, you'll never possess. They'll slip through your fingers. And Paul says this with tears, he says. They're running after things that will never satisfy them. They're settling for things that are temporary instead of what is eternal. So the first way to be an enemy of the cross of Christ is to deny that you're a sinner in need of a savior. And the second would be this, I would say, to believe that you can be right with God on the basis of your own good works. We talked about this a lot in the last couple weeks. Those who think they can stand before God on the basis of their spiritual resume, so to speak. I went to church every week. I gave to the poor. I tried to be a good person. And think that they can then stand before God and God will say, you know, congratulations, welcome into my heaven. And Paul says, no, that's not the way it works with a holy and perfect God. We don't measure up to his standard. And to be an enemy of the cross of Christ is to think that you can save yourself on the basis of your own good works. Because then you're saying, well, Jesus, thank you, but no thank you. I don't need your sacrifice for me because I can do it on my own. Remember what Jesus said? We looked at this passage last week. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? There's the spiritual resume there. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Right? He says, on that day, some are going to stand before me with their spiritual resume, and I've never done any of these things. Drive out demons, perform many miracles. I mean, that's a lot of, that's pretty, pretty good resume there. And Jesus says, I never knew you. It wasn't about religion. It wasn't about what you did. It's about whether or not you know me. Whether or not you've given your life to me. Whether or not I've saved you from your sins. In John three sixteen to 18, Jesus says these, Beautiful yet scary words at the same time. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Most people know John three sixteen. But what about 17 and 18, where Jesus says, this is God's love for the world, that he gave his son. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. 
But then he goes on to say, but those who do not believe in him, who reject him, stand condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. They have rejected God's only way of salvation. And again, Paul is not saying this callously. He is not saying this with vengeance in his heart. He says it, he says, even with tears. It brings him to tears as he thinks about those who have rejected God's only offer of salvation, the only way to be right with him. It brings him to tears because God's desire is that none would perish. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Can you take a moment now and just think of people in your life who do not know Jesus? People who are maybe knowingly or unknowingly living as enemies of the cross of Christ because they think they're fine on their own. They don't see any sin. They don't see any need for a savior or because they think I'm good enough so I should be good enough for God. And when I stand before him, I'll just tell him all the things I've done and that'll be good enough. Think of those in your life who are, are in that position. And you look at Paul and his tears And some of you know those kind of tears. Some of you weep maybe over your children or weep over your loved ones. Weep over people in your life who don't know him and what their eternal fate may be. And some of you maybe are a little more callous or maybe a little more just it hasn't gripped you in that way, the way it grips Paul. Pray for yourself first and foremost that God would give you Paul's heart today. And he'd give you the Father's heart who doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, who says with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. You remember, Paul was an enemy of the cross of Christ, right? I mean, he is probably in tears because he knows he was that way once. He thought he was fine on the basis of his own good works, and he persecuted the Christians, and he had no idea what he was doing. He thought he was living for God, and in reality, he was living opposed to God. He was sincere in his devotion to God, but he was sincerely wrong. And so pray, first and foremost, that God would give you his heart for those who don't know him. That you would take these words seriously. When Jesus says that God gave his son, that all who believe will have eternal life, but those who reject him stand condemned already. I mean, there are plenty of people around the world, right now even, who are trying to earn their salvation through good works, thinking if they do these religious deeds that they will be right with God. And the gospel says that no, no one on their own good works can make themselves right before God. There's only one way, and it's through Jesus, his death, his life and death that made a way for us. So pray for your heart that you'd have this kind of heart, this kind of compassion for those who don't know Jesus, and then pray Right now, let's just take a minute and lift up to to the Lord. We lift up to you, Lord, those who are on our hearts who do not know you, who knowingly or unknowingly are living as enemies of the cross of Christ because they don't think they need a Savior, because they don't see themselves as a sinner, or because they think they can save themselves and they're fine on their own. Please, Lord, lift the veil. Reveal yourself to them. Help them to see 
their need for you and your love for them. Lord, we want to see a revival. And please, Lord, give us your heart that we might love those who don't know you and share the good news with them. Thank you, Lord. Amen. That's just the first part of the sermon. I was just stopping in the middle to pray. but So he exhorts them in this. That there's two ways to be enemies of the cross of Christ. Deny you're a sinner in need of a savior and to believe you can be right with God on the basis of your own good works. And he says, don't live as an enemy of the cross of Christ. Live as citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What do you think it means to be a citizen of heaven? to live as a citizen of heaven. There's a lot of things I could say, but there's two things from this passage I want to highlight. Certainly to say, I reside here on planet Earth, right? You know, my home is in Manchester or Vernon or Glastonbury or Rocky Hill. But my home, my citizenship is not here. It's not here on Earth. It's somewhere else. What does it mean to say, basically, I'm, I'm, my home is somewhere else, but I reside here temporarily. I'm a resident alien here. He says, live according to the pattern that we gave you. Follow Jesus' example of humble, self-sacrificial love. I think it's the first thing that he says clearly over and over in this letter and in this section. That we're not living according to the pattern of this world, according to the way that our culture tells us to live. We are citizens of heaven. We're to follow the king of heaven, Jesus And so he begins this section again. He says, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern he gave you. And the pattern that he gave them was Jesus, specifically his humble, self-sacrificial love. In chapter 4, verse 1, look at the descriptions that he gives here, the descriptive language that he says, When he's talking to these Philippians, he says, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. He doesn't just say, stand firm, you know? He says, I love you. I long for you. You're my joy. You're my crown. You are my reward. You're my dear friends. Follow Christ's example of love. Follow my example of love, he says. He's not just writing a letter. He is pouring out his heart to them. Remember, again, we read this a couple weeks ago, but I want to just remind you of Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11, when we talk about the pattern that he gave them of what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. He said, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Follow the pattern that I gave you, he says. Live as citizens of heaven. Don't live according to the patterns of this world, but live according to the king of heaven. And this is the example we gave you, he said. That's the example Jesus gave. The one who had everything, who was everything, and was willing to become nothing. That's how low he would go to love and save us. And then he goes on in chapter 4 to give a specific example. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Can you imagine being Euodia or Syntyche? And they're reading this letter from Paul, and now all of a sudden you're called out by name. He's saying, whatever's going on here in your church between these two women, I'm pleading with them. I'm pleading with you to help them to find unity and peace for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the witness of your church. There's bigger battles to fight out there. We've got to find unity and peace in the church. And can I encourage you to work through any disagreements you may have, to follow the example of Christ in humble, self-giving, self-sacrificial love, elevating the needs of others above yourself. So again, he tells them to live as citizens of heaven. There's two things in particular I want to point out. The first was this, to follow Jesus' example of humble, self-sacrificial love. That's what it means to live as a citizen of heaven, to follow the king, to not live according to the pattern of this world. This world is not about humble, self-sacrificial love. This world is very much more about their God is their stomach, their mind is on earthly things, living for earthly pleasures, earthly desires. The second thing he tells them is this, to stand firm and stay faithful through suffering, knowing your king will return and set things right. Stand firm, stay faithful through suffering, knowing your king will return and set things right. Again, he said, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. He tells them to stand firm because Jesus will return. Your king will come. And when he comes, he will put everything under his control. And he will transform and exalt us that we will be like him. Our lowly bodies will be like his glorious body. Let me just share a few verses that bring this to hopefully to mind and to our hearts. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. When Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It's a great image there of Jesus who came down, who lived and suffered and died and rose again and ascended to heaven and he sat down. It's like, whew, wow, okay, that was a lot. 
and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. And now it says he's waiting for his enemies to be at his footstool. Put your feet up here. You know, put your feet up here on your enemies. That one day, that everything will be under his authority. And all his enemies will be like his footstool where he rests his feet. He will return and make everything right. He, Revelation 11, 15 to 17. Oh, I lost it. Where'd it go? I'll just read it then. Uh, Revelation eleven fifteen to 17. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. If you know Handel's Messiah, that sounds familiar to you. It says, On that day when he returns, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So Paul tells them, just stand firm, persevere. Your king will return. And when he returns, he'll make his enemies his footstool. He will reign over everything. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. In Revelation 21, 4 through 5, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Okay? When he returns, he says, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And so 2 Corinthians four sixteen to 18, Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Ready for this? He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let me read that again since I didn't have the slide obviously. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we, be, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Remember, this is Paul who went through all manner of shipwrecks and beatings and floggings and imprisonments, and he calls them what? Light and momentary troubles. He says, as I compare that with the eternal glory that is to come, it's a light and momentary trouble. It's nothing. It's one night in a cheap motel, as St. Teresa of Avila said. For those whose eyes are on earthly things, every suffering is magnified, Right? I had a 24-hour virus, and, you know, I was in bed suffering. For him, it's like, that's, that's nothing. Every little suffering is nothing in the light of eternity. In the light of the glory of eternity, it's a light and momentary trouble. The worst things we can go through in this world. It says, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Live as citizens of heaven. Not for worldly possessions, not keeping your eyes on the things of this world, but on Jesus. Psalm 1611, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Again, I don't know what those eternal pleasures are, but he says, stop going after the things of this world that are here today and gone tomorrow, but live for eternal pleasure. 1 Corinthians 2.9, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived 
what God has prepared for those who love him. Live as citizens of heaven. When he returns, he will exalt our bodies to be like his glorious body. Paul said the sun is one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. And so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. I don't know what that all means, but all I know is that those who feel like their bodies are wasting away here on earth, he says, on that day, it'll be raised imperishable, immortal, to never die, to never decay again. And when he returns, he'll set everything right, everything under his feet. Romans 14, 9 through 12. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As it is written, as surely as, the, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Christ will return, he says. He will return. He'll put everything under his control, everything under his feet. He'll exalt our bodies to be like his glorious body. He'll set everything right. All injustice will be made right. All enemies will become his footstool. All suffering will be overturned. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so he says, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Live as a citizen of heaven. This world is not your home. It is a temporary dwelling place. Do not live for the things of this world that are here today and gone for tomorrow. But give yourself fully to the Lord. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight said, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. One more time. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What would it look like for you this morning to live as a citizen of heaven, to not fix your eyes on the things of this world, the troubles of this world, the pleasures of this world, but to recognize it's here today and gone tomorrow, that you belong to Jesus, a king from another kingdom, to follow his example of humble, self-sacrificial love, and to stand firm and stay faithful through suffering, knowing that he will return and set things right. Let's pray. Lift our eyes up this morning, Lord, to you, to see you high and exalted. Lift our eyes above this world and the pleasures of this world and the troubles of this world. Help us, Lord. Help my brothers and sisters who are suffering here this morning to stand firm and to persevere, to press on to know you more. Encourage and strengthen them this morning to fix their eyes on you, to give themselves fully to the work that you have for them, knowing that it's never in vain, that it matters eternally, everything we do for you. Thank you, Lord, that we belong to you. Thank you, Lord, that you will return and set things right, that you will return and exalt our bodies to be like your glorious body. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.